scary ghosts, creepy serial killers, all things that go bump in the night. Enjoy the view from the open shutters. <laughs> Here's uh, Philip and I. Uh, this is our episode. Uh, tonight we're here with Mr. Frank Perez. He's a famous historian. What else does he do, Philip? He is, he runs his tour company. And he's, wow. And he is an exceptional writer. Oh, yeah, that's right. He's got all those great books like In Exile and some of the Which other Which we'll ones. actually be talking about. Yeah, we're going to be talking a little bit about decadence. that. Recently. How you doing, Frank? Hi, Frank. I'm doing well. How are you guys? Oh, we okay. I think I've met you before while I was doing tours. Yeah, I'm sure we've run, a, run across each other And you may remember point. me from my showbiz days. <laughs> oh, yeah. I worked with Donnie J and the Slut Puppies. Oh, that was, that's been a while, huh? <laughs> oh, that's a, that's a blast from the past. And I can never forget you, Frank. So. <laughs> well. Uh, we've all Facebook friends here. So um, tell us a little bit about your run for city council. I'm having a little trouble hearing you. You having trouble hearing us? Could, can you hear us now? Can you hear? Can you hear us? No, I'm not hearing you. Oh, he is having trouble. Uh, Let me see what's happening here. Wait a minute. Can you hear us? Could be. Seem to have lost you. Oh. You hear me now? Now I can hear oh, you. Yeah, now I can hear you. Yeah. Okay. Can you hear us? I can hear you. Yes. Okay. Good. We're gonna edit that little hair out. Yeah. Uh, so Barry, Barry was asking you to uh, just give us a, a brief thing about your candidacy for council. Let the let the listeners know. Uh, what office you're running for, and kind of, kind of a brief thing about your platform. Sure, um, I am running for city council, uh, District C. Uh, District C is the French Quarter, the Marigny, the Bywater, a little bit of Treme, a little bit of the Lower Seventh Ward, and then all of Algiers. And that district is currently represented. Uh, but oh, wait, we seem to have lost you again, Frank. Frank, can you hear me now? Now we can hear you. Yeah, and who is it currently? Uh, okay, so the, the, the current occupant for District C is Kristen Palmer. She has decided to run for at large, which means that District C is vacant, it's an open Wonderful. seat. Wonderful. So um, the reason I'm running, uh, and, and it kind of took a lot of people by surprise when I announced, because I've, I've never run for office before. I've never really had any political ambitions. Yeah, it just keeps on coming in and out. Are you still there? You still with us? That's the thing about these. Yeah, you go. We got you back. You know, it might. Can we do this just over a phone call? Would that be better? Well, we have. We, there's no way to record it over a phone call. Oh, okay. 
All right. That's why so we're doing it over Anchor because we 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 re- it's recording right now. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So the reason I'm running is because I don't like what I see happening in our neighborhoods and in the city in general. And by that, what I mean specifically is our quality of life is just gradually diminishing. Uh, and, and it's little things as well as big things. And I'm just tired of politicians sitting idly by and not doing anything. So what I would like to do is bring some common sense to City Hall and some problem-solving skills. It you know, sure I, needs it. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, there, there are a lot of problems at City Hall and not a lot of sense. So yeah. I am a common-sense, problem-solving kind of guy. The only yeah. problem is, is I'm not in your district. I wish I could. I wish I could vote for you, but I can't because I'm yeah, in Gentilly. We're, we're both in Gentilly, but we're we're a rooting for you. We are. Well, we are endorsing you. I appreciate that. Um, you know, for people who I have a lot of people supporting me who don't live in the district, they wish they could vote for me. Uh, but doesn't matter where you live, you can always support the campaign by volunteering or contributing money. If you want to learn more about that and the campaign in general. They can visit my website, which is real simple. It's frankperezcitycouncil.com. And I've got a little biographical section there about me. I've got uh, my position on a whole lot of issues and uh, just some other basic information there. So I would encourage people to visit uh, the website, frankperezcitycouncil.com. Okay, and there is a, a place to, for, to for contributions and things. Right. Anyway, people can donate right. on the website. Good. Um, and if they want to write a check, they can do that too. Perez you have an for address Council. to send check? Perez for City Council is what the check should be made out to and okay. should be mailed to 638 St. Anne Street. That's 638 St. Anne, uh, 70116. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So, talking more about that, we got, the, uh, we got your current. Uh, candidacy out the way we're going to talk about some more of your uh personal business things like the tour company sure one. and uh you're affectionately known as uh french quarter frank yes i think isn't isn't that your actual um website as well is right my french personal quarter? my personal website is frenchquarterfrank.com and that is a place where you can learn about all the different hats I wear, all the different irons, and all the different fires I have going. And there's things about my writing, my teaching, my tour guiding. It was my... an excellent website. I actually have, I actually have looked at it. It's, it's, oh. it's a wonderful, wonderful website. Well, I appreciate that. I, I yeah. needed a place to put everything I do in one spot because whenever I'd meet new people, it, it was hard to explain everything that I do. <laughs> now, and now I can That's just true. point and say, just go look at this website, and it'll make sense. Well, so. one thing in particular, that because of the episode we're doing here, is under the tour part, um, tell a little bit, people, give like the name of it, as well as tell just a little synopsis about the uh, tour that's geared towards the LGBTQ plus history of the system. Sure, you're talking about the Rainbow Florida Lee walking tour. Uh, which is uh, a walking tour I developed some years ago based on the research I'd done for my books and my articles. And and it's constantly changing and evolving. Uh, But basically, it's a walking tour, mostly in the French Quarter, 
uh, and we just talk about all of the rich LGBTQ plus history that we have here. And I usually try to customize it or tailor it to whoever's taking the tour. So, uh, you know, if it's a, a group of lesbians are going to be interested in things that maybe a group of older gay white men may not be interested in. Uh, if not long ago, I had some sex worker advocates. Uh, so <laughs> oh, that, was, that yeah. would be different than say, you know, uh, the history of trans, the trans movement. So it, it is a flexible tour that I kind of custom tailor to whoever is taking it. Um, I mean, there, I can do a general tour. We lost you again. He'll be back. I mean, oh, there you are. All right. So it's a small group of people, uh, you know, 12 or less. Uh, and with a smaller group, I can kind of customize it to whatever they're interested in. So, Well, you got walking LGBT history here because I'm older than you. I, I got you by, ele- <laughs> by like 11 years. Oh, okay. I was, I was, I was around during disco. <laughs> so maybe I ought to put you on the tour. You'll be well, a you stop. Know, I'm thinking, thinking about getting my license back. Well, you should. Something we can talk about. Sure, Barry, sure. Barry is quite entertaining. So. <laughs> well, you know, oh. that it kind of relates to the courses I teach out at Loyola University. Um, you know, in order to get a tour guide license in New Orleans, you have to jump through a lot of hoops. And one of the hoops you can jump through is taking my class. So the test I give it, it was accepted by the city as the equivalent to their test. So if anybody's interested in just... Uh, learning more about the history of the city and the tour guide industry or, and, or if you want to get your license, you know, the class is an option. The other, I teach two other classes as well. One is research and storytelling, which is designed for tour guides who want to really dive into a particular topic and then convert all that research into a story. So that's kind of a fun one. And then my favorite one to teach is just French quarter history. And there's oh, no tests, no like assignments, fun. nothing. It's just all about the French Quarter. Yeah, uh, and what, that... Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I, what did you say? No, I was saying when I took my uh, uh, tour guides test back in 2011, uh, Bill Norris was my instructor. He, he's recently passed away. Yes, he did. I took the course with Bill Norris as yeah. well. And when he retired... Uh, Delgado hired me to take his place. So I was very happy to do that. Uh, and then a couple of years ago, I moved over to Loyola. Yeah, they have Randy Bibb doing his now, I believe. <clears throat> right. Yeah. So we wanted to talk about, uh, we talked about you having a, a very, in my book, it's an illustrious writing career in, in, as far as I as, no, kind of pun intended, if you want to say there. I think it's a wonderful writing career you've had. And you wrote a book, uh, co-authored with Jeffrey Palmquist. It's been about a decade. You've written other books as well. Yes. But, uh, we want to talk about In Exile, which was one of the first major books you had written and put out. And it's almost a decade old that it's been out. Yeah. Research has been going on before then. And that's kind of what we want to kind of discuss tonight, is to discuss a lot about the gay culture and about the bar culture in New Orleans? Sure. Um, 
that book came out in 2012. And when the reason that I decided to write it was because I got frustrated because I was trying to learn more about the queer history of the, of the of New Orleans, and it just wasn't much out there. Uh, and, you know, somebody once said, whoever gets the vision gets the task. So I said, screw it, we'll just do it, I'll do it myself. And that book really barely scratches the surface. It is not an exhaustive definitive history by any stretch, but it's focused on the Cafe Lafitte in Exile, which is the oldest gay bar in the city. And the story of that bar is kind of situated in the larger context or narrative of uh, queer life in New Orleans. And um, it was very well received and it really opened up a lot of doors and uh, has inspired and, and motivated other researchers to dive into various topics as well. So I'm very pleased with that. Excellent. So some of the things that you bring up in that book, as well as uh, subsequent books after, there are some things you bring up. One of the things we want to talk about is how. let the listeners know what is the importance of the idea of the carnival and the gay carnival, especially even you personally, we know you have this 12th night party that you do yes. every year. So you can even talk about that. But tell the listeners about that. First. Sure. Um, you know, gay carnival, and I talk about this on my tour, the phenomenon of gay carnival in New Orleans is one of the things, one of a handful of things that makes our history here in New Orleans very distinctive and unique. Um, in many respects, our history is not unlike that of other cities, which is to say the closet, police harassment, invisibility, and all that. Uh, but there are some things that make us unique, and gay carnival is one of them. And so uh, it's a fascinating history. The definitive book on that was written by a guy named Howard Smith. It's called Unveiling the Muse, which is a beautiful book that came out a couple of years ago. And if people are interested in learning about Gay Carnival, I would recommend that. And Howard and I followed that book up. We, he and I collaborated on a history of Southern decadence book, but that's another story. So several years ago, I wanted to host a small party on 12th night to celebrate the arrival of carnival season because I love Mardi Gras, I love carnival season, had it in my apartment, maybe 100 people showed up. And it was, it was a good party. Then the next year I said, let me do it again. So it became a tradition. The last, I can't do it in my house anymore. It's like 500 people come now. Oh, so, wow. Yeah. <laughs> oh, good. That'd be a bad mess to clean up. And I'll tell you, the last time I did it at my apartment, and I live right in the heart of the French Quarter, I'm at the corner of Royal and St. Anne. So I've got oh, wow. this beautiful wraparound balcony. And, uh, that last party was crazy. It ended with <laughs> it ended with a fire truck, two state troopers, and an ambulance. You truly had a French Quarter party then. It it was one for the record books. Let me tell you. Uh, and I'll tell you this: the thing about parties like that party in particular, I always feel the 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 key to a successful party is to invite people that ordinarily wouldn't mingle or mix together. So at the 12th night party, I invited everybody from like upper class professionals, uh, as well as just crazy street people. Uh, <laughs> and so you get all these people that ordinarily would never socialize with each other. You get them in one room, give them a stiff drink and see what happens. And <laughs> it, it's just, it was magical and it has grown and taken on a life of its own. <clears throat> we actually, <laughs> excuse me, 
we eventually had to register as a, an official carnival crew with the Secretary of State. We're called the Crew de la Rue Royale Revelers. And <laughs> now we're doing the party. We have to rent out Carl Mack's uh, Mardi Gras Museum of Costumes and Culture, which is also in the quarter on Conti Street. It's a beautiful museum, huge space. And uh, the party is amazing. I try to keep it really affordable. The first several years, I didn't charge anybody. I've just paid for it myself. But now that we have to rent the space and the booze and the food and everything, I ask people to kick in 25 Okay, we lost you again. I'm back. You're back. Oh, you're here, you're here. Yeah. So for a very affordable price, like 30 bucks, you get access to the party. You get the Mardi Gras Museum. You get live entertainment. You get a little That's bit of a show. Bad. That's a good oh, we gotta go to You get an open you. bar. And you get free food. So it, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, we actually could podcast from your, um, we would, I would love for you to do that. We, we can do that. We can actually do that. Yeah. We totally can do that. So would all, so, all it takes is a, is a laptop and a, and a microphone. Yeah. Know? Well, we can do it. I mean, the highlight of the evening is when I reveal who the grand reveler is, right? So we, the, the second year we did the party, we decided, Let's pick somebody to be like a king, but we're going to call it the Grand Reveler because we're the crew to Royale Revelers. And so I tease people on social media throughout the year with, you know, who will be Grand Reveler six or seven or eight, you know, find out in so many days. And so we arrive, the, all the previous Revelers and myself arrive after the party has started. And that's kind of like the highlight of the, uh, of the party. And then it's a chance for me to, to roast one of my friends. It's usually somebody I know. And uh, it, it's it's silly and goofy and fun. We don't take ourselves too seriously. But it's just a wonderful way to kick off the carnival season. Wonderful. You know, I, you were talking about, like, you like to see people who don't normally socialize together. Uh, back in the 80s, when I was working as a bartender at the Hilton, I used to bring all the cocktail waitresses to see Marcy Marshall's show. Oh, wow. And they loved it. And some of them kept coming back. Yeah. <laughs> they just, they fell in love with it. Yeah. Well, so, I enjoy that you're carrying on that tradition, Frank. And another thing that you've become a part of history of, talking about traditions, is back in 2018, you were actually the Grand Marshal of southern decadence yes that was quite an experience one i will never forget and, and explain to explain to the listeners what that experience was like and how that fits into the history of southern decadence well sure um i think it's important for people to, to realize that southern decadence started almost 50 years ago in, in 1972 yeah. uh it was just a group of friends and it wasn't necessarily a gay event it gradually got gay over the years, especially in the 80s. And then it really didn't get huge until the 90s. Uh, but the tradition of the Sunday before Labor Day parade is really what it's all about. I suspect that, you know, of the two, 300,000 people that come every Labor, Labor Day weekend for decadence, probably don't even know there is a parade because every bar has its own programming. It's like a five-day street party. But really, at the heart of it is that parade on Sunday afternoon. And the tradition yeah. has been that the outgoing Grand uh, uh, Marshal selects his or her successor. And there's no criteria. There's no application. There's no vetting. It's just whoever the outgoing Grand Marshal wants to pick, that's who it is. And I was very, very fortunate 
2018 to be selected by uh, the outgoing Grand Marshal Coca Mesa, who had been selected by his partner the year before, Jeffrey Palmquist. And so it was a wonderful experience. It was a lot of work, okay? It's not a ceremonial title because the Grand Marshals are usually named in the spring and then they spend all summer raising money to produce the parade. Yeah, and it's it costs expensive. a lot of money. Right. You know? And the, another wonderful tradition, I think, is that Southern Deaconess Grand Marshals have traditionally resisted corporate sponsorship, right? Okay, so it's not like Pride, which is brought to you by Walgreens. And Lyft and Uber. We don't, and Uber and... <laughs> we, we don't want True. that for Southern Deaconess. Um, we will take, when I, when I was Grand Marshal in 2018, my co-Grand Marshal was Atticus Sopeasy, and we decided, you know what, if the, if, the, if the company contributes to human depravity and vice, we'll take their money. So if it's a liquor company or a casino or a poppers company or a rubber company that's fine we'll, we'll take their yes. sponsorship but you know, we don't we don't want you know we don't want to make it a family-friendly event <laughs> <laughs> yeah one time at the uh gaa i had to, they had the gay friendly business of uh year of the year awards yeah and at the time like for 25 years i was a united cab driver Okay. United Cab won, and I was the only person there <coughs> accepted. <laughs> and I, still, I think the picture is still in the old ambush oh, archives oh of me accepting the award for United Cab. And then I got so drunk, I lost it. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> now, I used to love some of the costumes of Southern Decadence. Oh, uh, yeah. I remember, yeah, the late 80s had with Tammy Faye's all over the place. Oh, I'm <laughs> sure. Went according to what it was supposed to be. But my favorite one was in the 90s. It was called Botafuco and Company. Oh, and wow. A lesbian like Joey Botafuco, <laughs> dressed like him with the hair like him and everything. And he had two drag queens, one dressed like Amy Fisher. The other was dressed like Mary Jo Botafuco. And each one had him on a leash. Oh, nice. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yes. I said, good Lord. Who thought, like, I mean, because anybody can think of Blanche and Jane Hudson. Or something like right. That. But that was just totally beyond clever. Yeah. <laughs> I know for my year, you know, it was 2018. It was the 300th anniversary of the city. And so we kind of went with a historical theme, the House of Bourbon, Unleash Your Beast. So my entourage dressed up in 18th century formal wear. I was dressed up like Louis XIV. And then wow. Atticus and his group went with the animal theme. Uh, so it was really, really fun. Usually, if I was ever the uh, Southern Deccan Grand Marshal, I would call it the Storyville uh, tour. And yeah, would that would be like, good. I would have like different madams, you know, to all these different yeah. drag queens. <laughs> drag queens. Like <laughs> Josie Arlington. And then the very last one, even though she wasn't a Storyville madam, I would have somebody as Norma Wallace. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So if people are interested in learning more about decadence and how it grew into what it is, they, they, I'm, I would invite them to check out my book, Southern Decadence in New Orleans, published by the LSU Press in 2018, by the way. So ha had I known that the book would be published, had I known that I would be Grand Marshal when the book was published, I mean, I, you couldn't have planned that better. I know. So it, was, it was quite amazing. That's so cool. Excellent. Well, let's now talk about the gay bar culture for a moment. The overall, sure. for talking about year-round. 
Uh, you've already mentioned about Cafe Lafitte, and you're, you have a wonderful book that we said in exile. If people want to check that out, that you co-author with Jeffrey Palmquist. But uh, and it talks about it being the oldest gay bar. But one of the things I want to ask you about is a lot of over the years, um, the community has defined its spaces with interesting little monikers and names for things. Like we call Saint Anne and Bourbon the the the, the center of the lavender line. Right. They call the network of bars kind of in the quarter and a little bit out the Fruit Loop. How do you feel about those kind of monikers being used that we use to define our those spaces for ourselves? Well, I think they're very clever and convenient. I, I have no problem with them. Um, you you it, forgot it, one, Caleb. What did I forget? St. Louis Financial District. Oh, yeah, just, the Financial District. That's right. St. Louis, uh, you're correct. Well, I was just going to add that sex workers but yeah you're right you're right the, the you know <laughs> and you don't see this so much anymore but you know certain bars used to have nicknames right like there was a bar called the wrinkle room uh-huh. uh, because of the average age of that. the patrons you know barry you might know something about that that was called the galley house it was right yeah. around okay i'm about to get a, a, uh-huh. li- a little bit this is why we rated explicit uh, <laughs> when the galley house was open i was in my 20s i would get you know, I would party like crazy at the pub in La Bistro's, which is now Oz. And then I would walk to the club backs. But on the way, the galley house was right around the corner. It was right there on the corner of Charters and Toulouse. And being 25, I go in there. And, of course, everybody's on you. Like, you know, what they say? <laughs> Ducks on the June bug. Uh-huh. And it just built your confidence. And you have all these older men who are actually... Some of them are probably younger than I am now. There's all these older men coming after you and telling you how beautiful you are. And you know, when you're 25, you don't even have to be good looking to be to be hot. You know? Right. Right. And it, you build this confidence so that when you went to the bath, you were so cocky and confident you were destined to get laid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, you know, some of those spaces are no longer with us. Yeah, and I will be actually at the end, but we're going to do a little special kind of like lightning round at the, towards the end of the interview where we're going to do like an ain't there no more, but it's going to be LGBTQ style. So I'm going to do that a little later on, but I have a few more uh, more important questions to ask right before then. <laughs> what do you see both looking at the past, present, and future? What do you kind of see as the role of the bar in say the larger or the gay bar in the larger what is known as the gayberhood? which includes other businesses that are gay-owned and operated? Well, that's a great question, and I'm not sure how to answer that. I, I'm a, One of my fears is that gay bars are no longer going to exist eventually uh, because for so long they defined our community in ways that was necessary, right? You had to go to a gay bar to meet other gay people, and that's not necessarily the case anymore. Um, and so you go to, you can go to the pub or Lafitte's now on any given day, you wouldn't even know you're in a gay bar because there's so many straight people there. Um, so I, I'm not sure what the future of gay bars is. I think the ones that will survive are the niche bars that cater to a particular kink or fetish or type. If yeah, that makes any sense, right? So that, that means that, that does make sense. That means you got straight folks throwing bed naps in the air when uh, love is in the air comes on. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and they're, they just keep on stealing our traditions. 
And, you know, there are older, particularly older men who get really aggravated with the fact that there are women in bars and gay bars because that used to not be the case. And it's like, hey, I mean, you got to be careful what you ask for, you know. Uh, well, I never but did the have times a are changing. with that. Because uh, um, like I said, I used to bring the straight women to see Marcy's show. Yeah. But uh, I, I, I did have a problem back in the day is how it was, it was the racism and the, the misogyny in some yes. of the gay community really, really used even upset me back then. And it used to get me upset about how... Um, like gay men would look down on trans people, but trans people were just as bad. They looked down on gay men too. Right. And when I was coming up, a trans person's attitude was you were either a man or a woman. And what they considered a man was usually what we would call a hustler. It would be some guy that's been in jail a bunch of times. Well, now everybody has tattoos, but back then only like the rough people had tattoos. Yeah. What you would call rough trade. You had to be rough trade to be considered a man. Anybody else was a woman. Even a gay man that had a good job at work somewhere was still a woman. And I'll, I'm glad that we got away from that. I'm glad we, yeah. got, we yeah. went away from that. I did I did want to confirm something Frank was saying about uh, the bar being the meeting place to find friends, find partners, find things. For me, I'm one of the last few of my friends that can say I met my partner at the bar one night. And we've been together for 14 years. Because most of my friends are now, they're meeting on apps. Yeah, they meet on Grinder and Growler. <laughs> well, what drives me crazy is when I'm at a gay bar and half the, half the guys sitting at the bar are on their phones talking to people who are also in the bar. It's like, put your goddamn phone down and go say hello to the guy. That's exactly. stupid. Exactly. You know? I'm with so, you on that. That is, that is so, so stupid. It's so funny. I got reamed by some gay man, one, some, some old queen one time. Because I had met my husband on a 976 line. <laughs> oh, and wow. And looked down on that. But now that's how they all be. They don't have 976 lines anymore. But Grinder and Growler are pretty much the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. So here's some of the issues they got to deal with as well, besides dealing with technology. Uh, y'all were talking even in this interview about how there used to be these lesbian bars. And we have talking about how there's a lack of it now. Like this, and this is not just New Orleans problem, but it's also a nationwide problem. Why? Why do you think that is? As an historian, what has actually happened there? Why is there no bars catering to specifically lesbians anymore? That is well, I, I get that question a lot on my tour, and I don't know how to answer it. I, I usually say that'd be a great topic for a grad student to write a thesis or a dissertation on, but if I had to guess. I would, I would probably guess that it has to do with the difference between the, the difference, the different ways in which men and women socialize. And, uh, you know, women tend to be, what, what's the old joke? It's a stereotype. Uh, but what does a lesbian bring to a second date? A U-Haul? Okay. <laughs> now, that's a stereotype, but there's a, usually a kernel of truth in most stereotypes. And for some reason, for whatever reason, lesbians just don't support, financially, they don't support lesbian bars. That's why they're all going extinct. I mean, that's, that's the easy answer. Now, why they don't support them, I'm not sure. Um, you know, you would think they would still be okay here in New Orleans, but there are no more lesbian bars. The last one closed 
in 2012. Yeah, I remember. I remember all the classic lesbian bars like Charlene and uh, Brady. Oh, yeah, I'm old enough to remember Brady's. The Grog was one. Um, Diane. There was Soil Dove. Soil Dove. Um, Ruby Fruit, Fruit Jungle. Jungle. Um, and what I noticed about most lesbian bars is what you would usually see there were young lesbians who were single. And I'm, women in general are much more relationship-oriented, like you said about the U-Haulers, than men are. And men have more, more of a promiscuous nature than women do. And men are okay with going and out and picking up somebody and having the one-night stand. Where women are kind of, uh, Society has ostracized women for that. If a woman sleeps around, she's a slut. If a man sleeps around, he's a great lover. Right. <laughs> so I think that, that kind of ties in with that, too, is how it... You know, there's still women, and we're still men, and we still have a male attitude, and they still have a female attitude. Yeah, so I, I'm not real sure how to answer that. Uh, I, I think you answered that well, though. Yeah. And, and, and you kind of did give insight to why, maybe, and, I, and, I, and I appreciate that. Uh, on another note, let's talk about, talking about diversity. And we kind of, New Orleans is a southern city. And... And over years, we've we've added more culture. We have added Vietnamese. We've added, you know, different Latin communities. But more importantly, looking at being a Southern city, how would you view where the black-white dynamic is now compared to the past in the community, in, well, the, in the bar culture? It's funny. You know, it depends on who you ask on how what answer you're going to get. It, I, I suspect that if you ask uh, a white cis gay man, are there racial divisions within our community? They'd probably be like, oh no, everything's fine. But if you ask the same question to a black gay man, they would say, oh yes, we're very divided. So it's all a matter of perspective. And in addition to the racial divisions, I would also add, uh, and closely related is a socioeconomic division, right? Because you've got a lot of uptown gays who rarely come to the quarter, you know, to them, that's slumming. Um, so I, I think there's a, a, a class element as well. And then, of course, there's also the issue of trans people. You know, they don't really have a bar dedicated to them. And they've always kind of been the redheaded stepchildren of bar culture. Yeah, uh, and, you know, they, they don't even have the roundup and the double play anymore. But yeah. they've been some of the most important to the movement overall. Yeah, you know, and then it's like, okay, I'll tell you, I, I know a little bit. I was there for a lot of the trans culture because a lot of my friends were trans people. I was trans friendly before it was cool. And it it started on Iberville Street. Right. Wanda's and the, and the midship. And then there was some other little bars up in there. Up, up in there. And then... It kind of moved in the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s. It moved to St. Louis Street when Miss Dew, who was a, a very, very popular transgendered bartender, Miss Dew went to work at a bar called Gregory's, which eventually became the double play and now is Crossings. And, um, and then the Roundup opened and, and always, and it, it, it went to St. Louis Street. So it was like the financial district was a Roundup. Double play, and the only thing left from that now is a, is a corner pocket, right? And that's basically a strip bar, you know. That's a that that's yeah. a, a go go boy bar more than anything. Yeah, no, I I know exactly what you mean, and yeah. uh, 
there's a wonderful story about Miss Dew at Gregory's. Uh, uh, she used to be a prize fighter, right? She was trained yeah. as a boxer. And uh, there's a wonderful story about a, uh, a patron sitting at the bar who was just annoying the hell out of her. And she finally just leaned over and decked him and he fell <laughs> out of the bar stool. And she just yelled at whoever was around, said, get him out of here. Yeah, she had that voice. That, that, she had that prize fighter's voice. Yeah. Another and let's and let's not forget Miss Fly. You know, Miss Dude and Miss Fly were best friends. Oh yeah, he owned the corner pocket. Yeah, yeah. So and, and another one, one, one of my favorites at the Roundup was Jackie May. Oh yeah, Jackie May would. Yeah, she either loved you or hated you. Yep, if she and, loved uh, you. You drank for free all night, and she loved yeah, Fred and, and I. My, my and another great partner. bartender there was Miss Carol, who uh, died oh, recently. Oh, Miss Carol was wonderful. Yeah, yeah. She was one of my regular cab passengers. Yeah, but, uh, but I, I saw Jackie Day one time. There was this queen that used to call Hurricane Kelly because she was always causing a ruckus everywhere she went, and she was in the in in the roundup. And and Jackie May had enough of her, and she said, "Bitch, get out!" So she's like, "Oh, you burned me out. Don't I have enough against me?" She says, "Get out!" So she runs out. Well, this queen used to try to sneak back in. Like if there was a fat person coming in, she would hide behind him and sneak back in the bar. Jackie, yeah. that is it. She got from behind the bar, she picked her up by the, the, the collar of her shirt, and, the, and uh, I think she was wearing pants at the time. She picked her up by the pants and finally threw her right in the middle of St. Louis Street. <laughs> wow. Yeah, those, I, I, I'm sad to say that uh, a lot of those, those I think, times have, have passed us by. Yeah. It's just, you know, there's still a lot of bars, but it's just not the same. Yeah. So y'all are bringing up St. Louis Street, both of y'all are bringing up St. Louis Street bars even. So that kind of lends to my next question. We already talked about it being the financial district, which means it really did become the center of LGBTQ plus sex work. Many yeah. of the people being, many of the sex workers being young, many of them being trans, and many of them being actually trans people of color. So my question to you, Frank, is we're very sex positive on our podcast. We're very supportive of people, sex work. We did a whole month on it. We did a whole month on it, legalization of it. Our thing is, what? how do you feel about the safety, security, and the health of these sex workers and and the service that they actually are possibly, and on our book, they're providing to the community? How do you feel about it? I, I, here's how I feel. I believe sex work is real work. Uh, I believe that we need to destigmatize it. I believe that we need to decriminalize it. Yes, indeed. Um, I think that uh, that it, it's something that's always going to be with us. You know. Um, oh yeah, the old profession. And. Uh, it would be nice if we could regulate it or somehow make it safe. Uh, you know, I don't know. I, I've talked to various sex workers about this and there are some who argue we don't want full legalization because then they'd be taxed. So there are some, some sex workers who don't necessarily want to be regulated and taxed. They just don't want to be arrested. So they would settle on a middle ground of just decriminalization I'm not sure where I stand on all that. Uh, I, I think we lock people up for stupid reasons, and I think we need to get away from that. Yes. Um, 
but yeah, um, you know, sex work is not going anywhere. You, you might as well just learn to deal with it. Yeah. And you know, it's like, my, we, even or not, my mom was pre- pretty forward thinking for someone of her generation and she believed in institution. She says, because if a client prostitute, she has to go to her pimp for help. If he, be, if, if it was legal and the client beat up, uh, beat her up, she could go to the police and have the man arrested. And, you know, and, and that's pretty wise thinking, I thought. And one yeah. of the things I wanted to say about trans people is, you know why sex workers? It wasn't exactly because they wanted to. It was because it was the only work available to them. Yeah, it was out of, out of a, a, a need or a necessity. Unless you were somebody like Marcy Marcel or Miss Dew or, you know, Rusty Halloween, you could, you could tend bar. Yeah. But that's about the only opportunity they was. The only one, Regina Adams actually worked as a receptionist and an electrolysis, and then she was an assistant chef at Andrew Yeager's for years. She's one of the few I've seen that actually had a mainstream job. Yeah, well, you know, we're lucky to have Regina still with us. Uh, uh, and she, she, you know, harkens back to the glory days of, uh, you know, the twilight years of burlesque on bourbon street with the female impersonators oh yeah she uh i I may be wrong but i think she told me once she got her start at the gunga den uh and on upper bourbon and i mean that that is just a classic bourbon street place that is uh ain't there no more yeah but regina has wonderful stories uh I got to get her on the, on this podcast. <laughs> well, you just brought up what, what I wanted to, uh, our, our final thing to do is I'm going to go through a list of sort of little quick questions. I'm going to give you uh, whatever the topic is, and I want you to give me a quick answer. And it's an ain't there no more. So give me an answer that ain't there no more. So the first one, very simple, and, and Barry's going to also answer after you for each one, is give me an LGBTQ plus bar, a gay bar that ain't there no more. Masquerade. For Travis's. Bartender. Oh. Summer people, I know. <laughs> That's a lot to choose from. I'm going to go with Miss Carol or Maggie. Okay. I'm going to go with Miss Dew. And you know, Maggie used to be my roommate at one time. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah. She was a character. <laughs> the next one, a drag performer that's no longer with us, that ain't there no more. Lisa Bowman. Marcy Marcel. I'll even throw in Donnie J's. Oh, yeah. That's what I should have thrown in, yeah. <laughs> yeah it's, hard, it's hard to keep these answers down to one. I worked with I both, know, both, I know. That's I okay. worked with both Donnie and you got to say more than one, that's fine. Uh, the next one I want is specifically a drag variety show that's no longer there. A really good, the actual show. Uh, well, would the Demented Women count? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, can I be egotistical and say slut puppies? Exactly. You can. <laughs> Barry, we'll allow it. We'll allow it. <laughs> okay. For the next two, I want to get a little more salacious. The first, this next, this next one, give me a a bar, backroom, or restroom that was kind of infamous that ain't there no more. Well, it's still there, but it's not used like that anymore. But the, the public restroom at the French market where Jermaine T-Bone's in a Decatur. <laughs> oh, my God, that's great. I'm going to go real old school and say TT's. Oh, wow. 
Okay, and even more so, um, which there are no more in the city, the bathhouse. A bathhouse that ain't there no more. Oh, uh, the one on, on Toulouse. The um, ominous the green doors. The club, yeah. That's the one I was going to when I go to the wrinkle room. Yeah. And I'm going to say um, uh, Flex slash Midtown Spa. Excellent. <coughs> uh, little, a little more uh, stepping away from that, going to something more to the uh, community. The next one I want to know, a gay community organizer or activist that's no longer with us, that ain't there no more. Stuart Butler. And the final one is, and I've got two answers if y'all don't use it on this final one that I'll give, but I wanted to hear y'all answers as well. Uh, gay real life kind of characters. These are non-drag people that are just sort of community fixtures. People that you might just see that walk into the bar. Oh, oh the first person that springs to mind. Oh, does it have to be not here anymore? No, I ain't, ain't there no more. No. Oh, um, well, I, I would probably go with uh, Rip and Marsha. Knock in. Excellent. And well, I, this is, they have to be gay because this one. LGBTQ plus or in the community could be gay. Well, she wasn't it. She was a straight woman, but she used to come into the bars all the time was Ruthie the duck lady. She was an ally. Okay, yeah. She, she, she went to all the bars. And I have two of them. One of them was a major artist, George DeRoe. Oh yeah. He George used to have DeRoe. conversations with me outside my work when I worked at Bottom of the Cup. George DeRoe. DeRoe. He was entertaining. Uh, he was, he was, he was wonderful. Uh, and he, always telling me I was beautiful. I was like, okay, that's interesting. I got. I remember one, another one now. And got... the, and the other person was John T. Martin, who uh, the late John T. Martin, who ran the uh, historic Voodoo Museum. And I'm gonna mention one other person. This man's name was Danny Fountain, and he used to. He didn't really do drag on stage, but he would dress up in this outrageous drag and call himself Betty Button. And at the time, he was a manager at Woolworths on Canal Street. And when he was out, the typical straight man, and he was, he had kids. He, he lived, he lived with Zach and Addie were murdered in that same apartment. And he had his two teenage kids. But when he went, he let loose, he was, he just went crazy. And he dressed in that really weird drag. He, he, uh, Danny Fountain was his name. And Betty Buttons was the name he used when he was in drag. Yeah. You know, uh, the, one more that comes to mind years ago, like in the early seventies, there was a Lucky Dog vendor who went by the name of Tinkerbell. Oh, I heard and of him. I never met him. I, I didn't meet him either, but I've heard a lot about him. He would he would sell his hot dogs at the corner of Royal and Canal. And there's a famous uh, story of a of a tourist couple looking for the uh, the ferry, and they're like trying to get to Algiers, and they're like, "Can you?" They went up to Tinkerbell and said, "Can you tell us where the Canal Street ferry is?" And Tinkerbell struck a pose and said, "Here I am, darling. Here I am." <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> oh, it, 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 it's I been wonderful. It. Thank. You. I want to uh, remind everybody: uh, you can follow us on Twitter at a shutters. Uh, Instagram is open uh, at open shutters podcast. Our Facebook, our Facebook business page is Open Shutters, a creepy podcast. Our uh, Facebook page www. Not point. I'm thinking of the Patron now. I'm going. <laughs> <laughs> group is the official page for Opal Shutters and Creepy Podcast. Our patron is www.patreon.com slash open shutters and you can email us at openshutters at yahoo.com. We 
we, you have something to say? I just want to say, Frank, is there anything else you'd like to say to the uh, listeners before we go? No, just keep being you and keep New Orleans magical and fabulous and weird and funky. Wonderful. Thank and we you want to so remind, much. And Frank, this is for you and everyone from the open shutters. But don't fall out the window. Goodbye. And thank <laughs> you so much, Frank. Thank, thank you, guys. Bye. Father. Right. Bye. <laughs> who claimed to have seen the man in a similar sitting, seen a similar man sitting in a yellow compact car nearby. And the neighbors gave collaborating reports to the, film, to the reporters and the police that an unfamiliar yellow compact car had been cruising the area for several hours. Yeah. And late in 1993, Berkowitz admitted in an interview with journalist Maury Telly at the, at, at the correction facility that he had shot those two girls. Yes. Oh, dear <laughs> all right uh now this uh next shooting um was um was in uh flushing queens next to brown park it was called denario a Citibank security guard and rosemary keenan a queen's college student and they were sitting in keenan's car when the windows suddenly shattered and De denario said that uh yeah, he thought the car like, exploded he thought the car exploded that, yeah. first yeah and then uh, he, um, Keenan started the car and sped away for help, and they didn't realize that someone had been shooting at them, even though he was, he was bleeding from a bullet wound. He was shot in the head. And Keenan only had superficial injuries from the broken glass. But uh, Denario eventually needed a medical plate to replace it, the portion of his skull. Yeah, Darno was lucky. I'm like saying, like if that went a couple of inches, or went just an inch yeah. wrong, or a couple of centimeters the wrong way. Yeah, and they found went. the 44 caliber bullets in their car. Yeah. And uh, he had long hair, Denario, and the police uh, speculated that Shooter thought he was a girl. And Keenan's father was a police officer, and they caught they, they you know. You know how the police, they take care of their own. That caused a really intense investigation. Yeah. And uh, there seemed not to be any motive in the shooting. The police made little progress. And many details of the De Niro Keenan shooting were very, very similar to the Laura Valenti case. But police did not initially associate them because shootings occurred in different boroughs and investigated different police reports. And the next shooting was... Um, Donna Damasi and Joanne and Joanne Lamino, they were students at um, Martin Van Buren High School. They were walking home from a movie on November 27, 1976. And um, after that was uh, Christine. It was January 30th, 1977, at 12:40 a.m. Christine Ferlin and the secretary, a secretary and a fiance, John Deal, a bartender, they were sitting in his car near the Forest Hills, um, Hills LIRR station. What is that? Um, LIRR. Let me click on that and see. Forest Hill. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's the, um, the entrance of the, uh, It's like a station, like a like a gated neighborhood. Oh, okay, okay. And um, he drove away, 
and suffered superficial injuries, but she was uh, shot twice and died several hours later. Mm. And the police made a public acknowledgement that it was similar to the other shootings. Now, March 8, 1977, uh, student Virginia Foscari Chin, she was 19, she was walking home from school, and she was confronted by a man, and she tried to defend herself. Was that the one with the book? Yeah, the textbook. Again, they said that was very important because that slowed down the bullet. So what previously were that with the forty-four caliber, they weren't able to get good ballistics. But that that thing, even though she died, she really did help the forensics because of that book. Yeah. So she was the one with the book. She's the one with the book. Yeah, yeah. that book. Because I remember seeing that dying. She Vosa held it. Richie. And it slowed Richie. down the bullet enough to help for the ballistics. Now, uh, uh, in March 1977, police and uh, New York City Mayor Abraham Bean declared that it was the same 44 caliber bulldog revolver that killed. Oh, yeah. oh, it shot these, you know, shot these people and killed some of them. So, um, they pretty much acknowledged that it was a serial. Yes. And uh, so, um, on April 17th, 1977, Alexander Esu, who was a tow, tow truck driver, and Valentina Serranti, a college student and aspiring actress and model, was sitting in the car belonging to her brother, to his brother, on the Hutchinson River Park Service in the Bronx, and uh, a few blocks away from the uh, Loria Valente shooting. Um, they were shot, and... and uh, she was killed on the spot. She was sitting in the driver's seat. And uh, she died on the scene. And he died in the hospital a few uh, a few, year, few hours later. Um, so then, in May, the police got a letter. And do you want me to read it? And that's what kicks off. Now, what you're about to read is what kicks off what is really known, people know in history, is known as the Summer of Sam. The Summer of Sam. It Gets kicked off by May this letter. Go 1977. All right. This is a letter they said. I am deeply hurt by you calling me a woman hater. I am not. But I am a monster. I am the son of Sam. I am a little brat. When Father Sam gets drunk, he gets mean. He beats his family. Sometimes he ties me up with the back, in, to the back of the house. Other times he locks me in the garage. Sam loves to drink blood. Go out and kill, commands Father Sam. Behind our house, so it, behind our house, some rest, mostly young, raped and slaughtered, their blood drained. Just bones now. Papa Sam keeps me locked in the attic, too. I can't get out, but I look out the attic window and watch the world go by. I feel like an outsider. I'm on a different wavelength than everyone else. Programmed to kill. However, to stop me, you must kill me. Attention all police. Shoot me first. Shoot or kill. Shoot to kill or else. However, to stop me, you must kill me. Attention all police. Shoot me first. Keep out of my way or you will die. Papa Sam is old now. He needs some blood to preserve his youth. He has had many heart attacks. Too many heart attacks. Ugh. Me hoot. It hurts, sonny boy. What the fuck is that? I miss the pretty princesses most of all. She's resting in Our Lady's house, but I'll see her soon. 
I am the monster, Belzebub. It's not a demon, but chubby Belmouth. Behemoth. I, behemoth. Yeah, behemoth actually. Oh, behemoth. Behemoth actually is known, if you look into things, this is very interesting. The beh- chubby behemoth. And this is what David Berkowitz was, um, himself. Behemoth is in the demon lore known as the cupbearer. Oh, now I know Beelzebub's so, a demon. So, 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 Beelzebub's one of the higher demons, but a chubby behemoth. So it's very interesting because the behemoth was kind of a servant or the cupbearer to some of the other higher demons. It's kind of, or in, very, very interesting. I mean, I may have got that a little wrong, but I'm kind of, kind of trying to explain behemoth as another demon in the whole demon lore. But go ahead. So then he's going, moving on. I love to hunt, prowling the streets for fair game, tasty meat. The women, and he has it spelled W-E-M-O-N, of queens are the prettiest of all. But I must water, it must be the water they drink. I live for the hunt, my life, blood for Papa, Mr. Borelli, sir. I don't want to kill anyone anymore, no, sir, but no, but more I must. Honor thy father. I want to make love to the world, love people. I don't belong on earth. Return me to Yahoo's. As he means Jonkers, to the people of Queens. I love you. I want to wish all of you a happy Easter. May God bless you in this life and the next. And for now, I say goodbye and good night. Police, let me haunt you with these words. I'll be back. I'll be back to be interpreted as bang, 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 uh, yours in the murder monster. And um, the police thought that that was written in, in was like. Scottish English, like me hoot to hurt sonny boy. So the uh, killer's unusual attitude towards the police and media received widespread scrutiny. And like you said, that that's with uh, with uh, what um, kicked off what they call the summer of Sam. Now, on May thirtieth, nineteen seventy seven, he wrote uh, he wrote a letter to Jimmy Breslin, who was a a, a, a reporter for the Daily News. And this letter's a little long, and I'll still read it. It's one paragraph. Hello from the gutters of NYC, which are filled with dog manure, vomit, stale wine, urine, and blood. Hello from the sewers of NYC, which swallow up these delicacies when they are washed away by the sweeper trucks. Hello from the cracks in the sidewalks of NYC. And from the ants that dwell in these cracks and feed on the dry blood of the dead that has settled into the cracks. JB, I'm just dropping you a line. That's Jimmy Breslin. I'm just dropping you a line to let you know that I appreciate your interest in those recent and horrendous 44 caliber killers. I also want to tell you that I read your column daily and find it quite informative. Tell me, Jim, what will you have for July 29th? You can Mm. forget about me if you like, because I don't care for publicity. However, you must not forget Donna Loria, and you cannot let people forget her either. She was a very, very sweet girl, but Sam had a thirst. Sam's a thirsty lad, and he won't let me stop killing you. He gets his until he gets his fill of blood, Mister Breslin, sir. I don't think that because you haven't heard from me in a while, for a while that I went to sleep. No. Rather, I am here, like a spirit, roaming the night, thirsty, hungry, seldom stopping to rest, anxious to please. I love my work. 
Now the void has been filled. Perhaps we shall meet face to face someday, and perhaps I will be blown away by the cops with smoke and 38s. Whatever. I shall be fortunate enough to meet you, and will tell you all about Sam, if you like, and I will in introduce you to him. His name is Sam the Terrible. Not knowing what future holds, I shall say farewell, and we'll, I will see you at the next job. What should I say? I will see you. You will see my handiwork next job. Remember, Miss Miss Loria. Thank you, and in, in the blood and from the God. Thank you. In their blood and from the gutter, Sam's creation. Forty-four. Here are some names to help you along. Forward them to Expector for use in the NCIC. The Duke of Death, Wicked, Wicked King Wicker. Twenty-two disciples of hell. John Wheaties, rapist, suffocator of young girls. P.S. Please inform all the detectives working. The slain to remain. P.S. J.B., please inform all the detectives working the case that I wish them the best of luck. You keep digging, drive, think positive, get off your butts, and knock on your coffins until my capture. I promise all the guys will be working on the case. A new pair of shoes if I can get up the money and it's signed Son of Sam. Okay. Let's talk about something right there. Okay. He admits in that letter giving names. This is what makes this letter more interesting than the letter before. Mm -hmm. It's because he gives the names. And one key thing he does also give in there, he says the 22 disciples. Yeah. And he also gives the name John Weedy. None of this deals with him particularly, unless he's one of the 22, but that means there's other people. Yes, well, that's what a lot of people think that this was actually a group thing, and th and this is where we get this first hit that he may not have been working alone, and we're going to talk about more, I'm sure, but I wanted to point that out in that letter. Now you might have a, a little commentary about this. It says that underneath the sun and the sand was a logo, a sketch that combined several sim symbols. Oh, it was a. Let me get the name. Um. The name, actually, the symbol is not from him. It's from the 19th century. It's from, um, Elif 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 um, oh gosh, I should have had this up for you. The, um, let me see if I'm gonna look at it. Okay, the, okay, so the symbol. Go, go ahead and talk it out. When I get it, I'll tell, I'll let okay, y'all know. Okay, and uh, yeah, it says, um, it's an old symbol, actually. And it said uh, underneath, uh, and it also questioned that what will you have for July 28th was considered a threat because July 28th would be the anniversary of the first 44 caliber shooting. So Breslin sent the, the note to the police who thought the letter was probably from someone with knowledge of the shootings. And it was uh, sophisticated in its wording and presentation, especially when compared to the crudely written first letter. So it seems as though they were created, written by two different people. Yeah. That was another strange part, yeah. So we are going on. June 26, 1977, there was another shooting. Sal Lupo, who was a mechanics helper, and Judy Placido was a recent high school graduate. And they had left the discotheque in Bayside, Queens. They were sitting in, his, in, in, in Sal's car about 3 a.m. when three gunshots blasted through the vehicle. 
Uh, Lupa was wounded in the right forearm, and Placido was shot in the right temple, shoulder, and back of the neck. And both of them survived. So Lupa told police the young couple had been discussing the Son of Sam case only moments before they became victims. Oh, I know. That was the, that was the that strangest was thing. Really I, was like, you saw that, yeah. I was like, what? That's one of those things of like, you're thinking... You know, like you think of those times when you like you talk about something and then it happens, and yeah. it's like maybe you shouldn't mention something and make it a reality. I, but you know something? That's something you would see in the movie. They'd be sitting around. Oh, I want to get home while that maniac is around because you know they were still calling people maniacs back then. And all but, of a sudden, bang! But this—that's that thing of manifestation of fear we talk about. Yeah. Since some people like, yeah, I, I, this is one of the few times we can actually talk about this because it makes sense. But yeah, that manifestation yeah. of now, fear. Now this is an important one. This is um, uh, on the first anniversary. Um, they try. They they they, they uh, establish a dragnet, and the next and final shoot in, the, uh, in Queens in the Bronx, but actually the next one happened in Brooklyn. On July 31st, 1977, that's Stacey Moskowitz and, and Robert uh, Violente, uh, both 20, were in his car, and, which was parked under a streetlight near City Park in the neighborhood of Bath Beach. They were on a date. And they were kissing when a man approached three feet to the passenger side in his car and fired four rounds, striking both victims in the head. Before he escaped the dog, a man um, named Tommy Ziano, a lot of Italians in this, was a witness to the shooting, and Violante lost his left eye, and uh, she was the only blonde victim, and she died from her injuries, and that was the night that uh, that was the one that they say they filmed, wasn't it? Which one? The um. Uh, that was a snuff. Yeah, that was the one that was claimed to have been a snuff film. But they never really found the film. Which they, they believe Sisman was it? Sisman was his name. Ron, he was the actual filmer, but they never know the film. It was probably kept for within the organization. If it was, like, if I mean, I'm just saying, it was most likely what if if this story is true. This was a film they kept for themselves. Yeah. So so uh, it was like a personal collection snuff film. So now we get to August 9th, 1977, and this girl was walking her dog, Kalisa Davis, and right at the scene of the two shootings when she saw a patrol officer, uh, Michael Catano, you know, I, I don't know why I have such a problem with Italian names. He was ticketed in the car in the fire hydrant, and right after that, it left a young man had walked past the area and seemed to study her with some interest. And she felt concerned because he was wielding something in his hand. Some kind of dark object. So she ran to her home. And only heard shots fired behind her in the street. So he he shot at her while she was running to her house. And she remained solid about this experience for four days. Until she finally called the police. And that's when um, his, uh, his 1970 four-door... Yellow Ford Galaxy was among cars that they investigated, and they got names, and they telephoned the Yonkers police and asked them to schedule a interview with Berkowitz, and the Yonkers police dispatcher who just took his call was Wheat Carr, the daughter of Sam Carr, and sister of Ber- 
Kowitz's alleged confederates, John and Michael Carr. And I remember in the, um, in the documentary, she says, David Berkowitz, oh no. Like she was upset that he was, that they were investigating him. So he was arrested the next mm. day on August 10th. Um, and they found a paper bag which contained a 44 caliber bulldog. The revolver was identified in a ballistics ex test uh, found next to Berkowitz in the car. And then he's told the police, you got me. Hmm. And he says, not that I've got you, the, the detective said, what have I got? You know, the man said, with the de you know, no, I don't. You tell me. And the man turned his legs. He said, I'm Sam. You're Sam, Sam who? Sam, David Bergowitz. So, um, on August 11th, he made a, a, a confession under the, uh, and, and expressed interest in pleading guilty. And he said he claimed that a neighbor's dog was one of the reasons he killed, that he, the dog told him to kill people. That's really strange. So since he pled guilty, he did say there are other sons out there. God help the world. And um, he declared that his previous claims of demonic possession were a hoax. Berger was stated in a series of meetings with a special court appointed psychiatrist that he had long contemplated murder to get revenge on the world that he felt had rejected and hurt him. So, um, three separate mental health examinations determined that Berkowitz was competent to stand trial. And the defense lawyers advised Berkowitz to enter a plea of not guilty by reason of sanity, but he refused. Hmm. And he appeared calm in court on May 8, 1978, as he pleaded guilty to all shootings. And his sentence two weeks later, he caused an uproar when he attempted to jump out the window. I saw this in the documentary. He, he kind of went ballistic and still wanted to jump out the window. And he had to be restrained. And he said, Stacy was a whore. I'd kill her again. I'd kill them all again. And the court ordered another psychiatric exam before sentences could be, can proceed. And he drew a sketch of a jailed man surrounded by numerous walls. And at the bottom, he says, I am not well, not well at all. So, um, what else has been going on? Now, later on, didn't they find, let's talk a little bit about the, the idea of the, uh, with, um, Maury uh, Terry. Maury Terry. And didn't he start to suspect that there may have been other people, including the Carr family? Yes, and he believed that all of this may have actually connected to a satanic cult that met in Untermeyer Park in Yonkers. And didn't they find a, a, like a um, an altar or something in, in there? They found a few different things. They even found a... Um, uh, like an inner, like kind of like within a little brick thing, there was like this. What was it within? Was it was it the cistern or whatever? But there was like they found with like symbols on this and everything. But they did things all over the park. Is what they found. It wasn't just like there's different sites they found within Untermeyer Park with symbols and things. And I'm still trying to find that the original creator of that symbol. I'm having trouble. I would have. I wish I would have wrote it down when we were watching the documentary, but it was something from the 19th century. But anyhow, they would find all that there, and apparently this 
this cult, which was known as the supposedly the Children, was the name. And then they, which had connections, possibly to the Process Church of the Final Judgment, which is also important because we'll be talking about that even in later episodes far, way farther down the road. Eventually we'll get it. there a Scientology connection somewhere Scienti- It started as Scientology. It came out of Scientology as creators, which, well, which we may do a whole thing on them eventually and talk about them as well. The, uh, uh, more when we have a... We're going to have a, um, a series on cults eventually. Yeah. And we're going to bring up a lot more about the process um, Church of the Final Judgment. But we do think that the children branched off from that and some of the things that were involved in the park that they talked about were these people were involved not just in the park but they were involved outside of the park in drug trafficking child pornography but this is something very strange that went on the park they said there were a lot of sacrifices of dogs different dogs specifically German German shepherds. shepherds here's the key the, the process church of the final judgment like to keep German shepherds as like these thick, as part of they thought of as their best for animal side they yeah. love to keep German shepherds around and it was kind of their they had communication with these animals or stuff so I'm wondering if the children took the some route because there was that reverence for the German shepherd in this strange uh, in the process church, yeah. did the children in this cult take that and twist that away and say, we need the blood of our best friends to do our deeds? Which is very sick. Yeah, it's very sick. It's really fucked. I don't like this. <laughs> it's it's like dark. This I know, it's dark. Um, but, but they said there was a lot of, there were a <coughs> lot of animals actually um, killed. And, and, and I know they say I know because I just really watched the documentary. It's pretty fresh. And they found on. bodies in Empire Park. Yeah. They, and they found dogs. And dog they found bodies. Bones and I'm talking stuff. about dog bodies. In yeah. Now he was sentenced on June 12, 1978, to 25 years of life for each murder to be served consecutively. Consecutively. <laughs> and he was ordered to serve time at Attica. And he didn't like it at Attica. In 1979, somebody slashed his throat. And uh, he had a wound that required 50 stitches. And he wouldn't identify his assailant, claiming only that he was grateful to the attack. He brought a sense of justice, or in Berkowitz's words, the punishment I deserve. Now, this here's an turn of events. In 1987, he became a born-again evangelical Christian. And uh, according to his personal testimony, his moment of conversation, conversion, occurred after reading Psalm 34.6 from the Bible given to him by a fellow inmate. He says he is no longer to be referred to as Son Sam, but as the Son of Hope. And he invited um, Malachi Martin, an exorcist, to help him write his autobiography. But... No, yeah, yeah. Balachi offered to write his autobiography, but he wouldn't accept it. And uh, he developed memoirs with the assistance of evangelical Christians. He's been, um, he's not, uh, he he goes up for parole every two years because it's the law, but he never gets it. And um, 
He wrote a book about witchcraft in North Dakota in 1979, and he had under um, uh, he oh no he mailed a book about witchcraft to the North Dakota, police in North Dakota, and underlined several passages and read a few marginal notes, including the phrase "arsenic Perry haunted, stalked, and slain," followed to California Stanford University, and that was a reference to a um, a 19-year-old girl from uh, North Dakota named Arliss Perry, who had been murdered at Sanford in, on October 12, 1964. And her death was notorious and, uh, because of the abusive on her corpse in the chapel campus, and it was a widely reported case. He mentioned the name Perry attack in other letters, too, and suggested that he knew details of it from the Fertrick Perp himself. So police interviewed him, but they, but they now, and by 2004, believe he has nothing of value to offer. The, Arla, the, Perry, the case was closed in, in 2018 when they found, that, they found that a church security guard had raped and murdered her in church when she, when she was going to, to um, I guess, going to church to pray, you know? Like Catholics do sometimes. So, um, he named two of the cult members, John and Michael Carr. That, yeah, who were the brothers of which the lived right dispatcher down. from the the Yonkers police that said, "Oh no, not David Berkowitz," and they was neighbors of theirs, and they owned and they um, they were the sons of Sam Carr, sons of Sam. Exactly, and they, lived, and they lived nearby, and both of these sons of Sam's were long dead. John Carr had been killed in a shooting, judged by judged a suicide in North Dakota. Now this in North Dakota. And Michael had been in a fatal car accident. Uh, Burgos claimed that the perpetrator of the Demasi Lomino shooting was John Carr, and added that a Yonkers police officer, also a cult member, was involved. And he claimed Michael Carr fired the shots on Lupo and Placido. Um, Author Maurice Terry, we were just talking about Maury Terry, uh, wrote that Michael Carr was a very active Scientologist who traveled to Scientology's Mecca in Clearwater, Florida. So the case was reopened. And um, a lot of people were believing that the only shooting that Berkowitz did was uh, was a down in Loreira. And, um, and the, um, the other ones, the, the girl that was killed the, the, the second ones. Which ones were those that, 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 that he, they definitely believe he did? Donna Loria. <sighs> he did the... Oh, shoot. I always remember he did that one for sure. Yeah, he did Donna Loria. I'm looking at it right back up again. And he did he did Muskowitz. Donna Loria. He did Muskowitz, the one, the snuff one, right? He did that one. He shot her. No, no, he didn't. He didn't shoot that one. That's right. That's right. According he to claimed it said. later. He reclaimed it. I know. It got so confusing. No, it was De Niro and Keenan. And, and Aaron King, he claimed and, that one. Yeah, and he, uh, and th- those two survived. I think Loera and Venenti died. And the other one, he claimed it at one point, then didn't claim it. And then, it, like, he got, it got so confusing. Yeah. No, he survived, and she. Uh, I apologize because there's different interviews. Yeah. He'll go and Denario, back and forth. Denario, um, uh, Carl Denario, wound up joining uh, Terry in trying to reopen the case and trying to prove that these other people were involved. It, it wasn't all Berkowitz. But eventually, Maury Terry went a little nutsy, didn't he? You want to talk about that a little bit? 
Sure. What, how, what, what, did, what did he do that caused to make people stop believing him? Well, part of what he did was the way he handled the interviews and some of what he kept going is he, he kept... Um, Maury Terry did something in journalism you shouldn't do, which was he was like he was setting up the answers. And oh, he was leading, like he was when leading, they said he's leading question. Yeah, yeah, lead, yeah. And so, um, and in journalism, you're supposed to just ask questions that leave for the person to have an open discussion. Instead, Maury Terry was making questions where it leaved it to like yeah. simple yes and no's instead of allowing for actual details. He was giving whatever details he thought instead of allowing the detail to come from Berkowitz himself. Oh, yeah. And that was a problem because, and, and some people really felt bad because they knew Maury Terry did his research and Maury Terry was, he was going on a correct angle of yeah. things he was just not using the integrity in which to, to to handle it, and it was really sad to see. Oh yeah, it's like when you know something, but you, and you start pushing it instead of allowing it to develop. Toward and um, so David Berkowitz today still is still on uh, not on death row, but he's still serving his sentences. He's sixty eight years old, and um, Maury Terry died in two thousand five. The case had really just consumed him. So, what do you think? Do you think that there was that it was there was a cult involved in this? Philip, <laughs> I don't mean there definitely was a cult involved. You don't think that Berkowitz acted alone? I don't. No, I, I mean it doesn't make sense. Certain of the ones did not add up, and at some level, I mean some of the things that's. I don't think Berkowitz really was a loner like they make him out to be. I think he wanted to belong to stuff, and I think he found this group, and he belonged to this group. And him and this group, I think it was a lot of people yeah. that were looking for some sense of belonging. And the deeper they went, and the deeper they went down the rabbit hole, I think they ended up performing more heinous acts to yeah. appease whatever desires of belonging they had. So, yes, I do think that there was a cult involvement. Yeah, I think so, too. And there's too many. Uh, a lot of the, the, the uh, artists, the sketch artists, the you know, police sketch artists, uh, drawings, look like different people. And, and, and if I, when I watched the documentary, they showed one of them, and it was just a dead ringer for John Carr. It was one of the shootings one of the witnesses did. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah, they showed that with all the depiction. And that's when I said you had... The thing is, when you have that many varying police sketches, and we're not talking about these police sketches didn't just vary in hair, style, and color, and things yeah, like that. Because yeah. that you could... Those features. That you could chalk are. up to wigs. Right. This was... The features were different. The eyes The nose. heights were different. Yes. Things were different. And it just comes to a point where... That starts to add up that there's more people And involved. it's also, the, they both the, both of the Carr brothers died under suspicious circumstances. As John was murdered, and and the uh, Michael died in a car accident. Yeah. And that could be murder, too. Somebody could have messed with the brakes. Anything could have happened. Ran them off the road. Because you could kill somebody, you cause them to have a car accident if you yeah. want to. 
I do feel like Berkowitz <sighs> and the cars and all were probably, I mean, I don't want to sit here and be like complete conspiracy theorist, but I think if just adding up, if there really was a snuff film, if there really was these other things with drug trafficking, child pornography going on, I think there was a more elite society above what the people that were doing all of that. Yes. I, there was one police officer that was, just kept on trying to discredit uh, uh, Terry. Uh, he, his name was Joe Coffey. Yeah, not God, nece- he was an asshole. And, not ne- and you're right, not necessarily that he was part of the call, but that person may have had someone above him or somebody that had some influence to influence someone above him, him to stop it. You know what I'm saying? So you have to think there's always lines of influence, you know? Yeah. Sitting, sitting there. Um, I think I couldn't find the thing, but I know um, we do know that um, that Aleister Crowley and um, we know that his teachings were important, and I think it might have been Gregorius. Some of the teachings from the books of Gregorius might have been where the the symbol got variated from the symbol that was used. Yeah. I may be wrong. <laughs> I'd have to go back and actually look at the documentary to get the name, but I was just wanted to hurry and throw that back in there about the symbol mm-hmm. that I think it was derived from some of those teachings from Gregorius. It might have been his. I may be wrong. If not, it is on the Netflix documentary where the symbol came from. They do explain that. Okay, I was looking to see what happened to Joe Coffey and this damn thing. But if you look at the symbol itself, I wanted to mention on the symbol, it does have, you can see where it has making up the symbol. You can see the symbol for like Mars and Venus and some other things are all combined into the symbol. So it's actually, the, 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 the symbol is made up of, it's a very, of, it's by amalgamating other symbols. Uh, Joe Coffey is dead. He died um, of lung cancer um in nineteen in two, uh, 2015, September 2015. So, I'm, I'm, I'm going to get to one thing in a moment, but you're bringing up another, one thing I want to talk about also is with Berkowitz did two things that's very interesting. He told Maury Terry in that letter, even if you get all this, they still won't believe you. Like yeah. you can have the best. It doesn't matter how true. you present doesn't it. Really it doesn't happen. matter how you package it. They're not going to believe. It. So Berkowitz yeah. knew, admitted in that letter that Maury Terry was on the right track, but he also told him, "No one's going to believe you." Yeah. So he knew. Berkowitz knew people. There were probably higher people involved with this that were going to control everything, including not just himself, but Maury Terry and what Maury Terry was allowed to yes. do. So, Berkowitz, we get all these strange interviews going back and forth. We have him, he never doesn't admit to being involved in the murders. He always admits to being involved all the way through. His level of involvement changes. Yes. So it goes to him being the, where, well, we kind of believe, full killer, to where we get the interview where he opens up that there were the possibility of other people involved, but we have the issue of Maury Terry doing the leading, to eventually we have him um, more recently with his whole becoming this born-again Christian, Mm -hmm. um, which I kind of have a hard time 
believing that. I mean, yeah, well, you sorry. Know. I mean, if y'all don't think, but I just I have a little hard time believing. Maybe he know. may have, and that's his choice. But I'm just, I'm just thinking if he was, if he is, was that deep in that cult, and he was that deep in the thing. How is it? He may have been, but I mean, I'm, he may be part of this whole thing anyway. Just to say that he was a born again Christian, and they want him to play that, to play it off. Well, you know, a lot of them do that because Susan Atkins, one of the Manson families, became a born again Christian, and she became a. a, a a minister in jail and everything. Maybe they do, so, maybe they don't. We don't I don't know if how... I, I think it still feeds know. into a sense of belonging, but now he says he committed all the murders, once again. He says he's committed all yeah, of them, and he owns a... And so, I mean, at least he's... I can say, at least for justice sake, he's at least taking responsibility for his part. But part of the problem, also for justice, is the factor if there were other people involved... He knows the secrets, and he's never giving those away. Yeah. If it is. So, which really does leave us at a level of a mystery here. Yeah. Well. I don't think we're going to answer that part. So, the only other thing we have to answer with him. I know. I know. <laughs> but one other thing. What is. Was there a satanic force? Because we, we were talking about the devil made me do it, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, do you believe there was a satanic force? Uh, well, you know. To these murders? Yeah, there could be. I mean, it's possible. I, I don't know for sure. Because people do horrible things without any kind of satanic force. Okay, I'll, get, I'll give you then what I think. On okay. both a psychological and psycho-spiritual level. Of what I feel after watching all the documentaries, looking at this. Even observing David Berkowitz in those, in those interviews and all. I don't believe he's a psychopath. We're going to look at psychopaths, some, some psychopaths. I think he's a sociopath, number one. Mm -hmm. Which I'm not saying that there isn't some... Which doesn't give credibility to his born-again Christian stuff. It could just be something that's convenient. Right. I think he's always looking for something to belong. Okay? Yeah. Um, that's not to say that there's not power in, in Christian prayer and there's not power in satanic ritual there's power and all yeah. of that religion is religion okay right. there are entities there are deities so this is what I'm getting at I think he is a sociopath I think he is made I think a lot of what goes on um, with him is because of the nature of with his adoption his upbringing the lack of knowing where he yeah. was that, him really questioning certain things about himself I also think sort of the society he grew up in, the being in the military, things he might have saw, all of those things had effects along the way. Right. Getting to the idea of the satanic force, though. Whether or not there were other cult members involved or not, he was in that satanic cult, and he did do some of these murders. Oh, yeah. And here's the thing. Even though you get your free will, and this is where this is where my belief sits with the thing. I think a lot of people are like, ooh, you know, somebody possessed and the devil did it. I still think there's a free will level. And I think what happens though is when you get in these satanic rituals and you're and you're worshiping and it is not to put down I have friends that are connected into mm -hmm. Satanism or call even some that might be part of the satanic church, which is a different thing. And I very much respect their, their faith, their workings. But what I would say is for certain people, 
if they're a sociopath and they get involved in a more of a cult kind of status, where it's a little more on the fringe, mm-hmm. they're still praying to certain demons, certain deities. They may not be doing that in a, in a way that you see that's more controlled. So they're leaving a door open for that chaotic energy to come in. Yeah. They're embracing it. And they're allowing themselves to be tempted. Yeah. They're allowing themselves to be encouraged. That's still their free will. It's and they still go out and act and do these murders and things and there's still thought and there's still premeditation. But you did the ritual, so the satanic force is with you. Yeah, kinda of creepy and everything. But you know, nobody knows for sure. Nobody except knows for the people who did except it. Except for the, the person who did it, yeah. All right. <laughs> Okay, uh, well, that was um, our first episode of uh, The Devil Made Me Do It. Uh, who are we doing next week? We're going to do an H.H. H. Holmes. We're going to take it oh, back to the 19th century. I just watched his documentary. I need to watch it. I need yeah, to watch it. it real I forget which one it's on. I, 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 uh, it's on Hulu, I think. Okay, yeah, it used to be on Netflix. Yeah, it is on Hulu. I watched it at work. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a crazy one, let me tell you. He, and he, it, it's a, that's a, he's going to take in his own. And this is going to be one of the first really documented serious now, American warning, serial killers. A lot of it involves the killing the children, that murder. Yes. So uh, that's going to be really, really tough on that one. And we are going to explore the same thing we're exploring with all of, of the things this month. Is what is, is there a demonic force involved? Is there a satanic force involved? And so we'll be doing that as well. With and our movie, which will be uh, which will post on Sunday, is going to be The Omen because yes. we're doing devil movies all yeah. <laughs> all month long. So anyway, you can follow us on social media at A Shutters, our um, Instagram at Open Shutters Podcast, Facebook business page is. Open Shutters, the, no, yeah, Open Shutters, a creepy podcast is a business page. Facebook group is the official page for Open Shutters, a creepy podcast. Um, we're, we're in the process of getting our, our Cafe Press merchandise together. We're going to have some really, really neat stuff. And now you don't, you know, you don't have to join any kind of, of thing. You could just buy direct. Uh, we also, uh, what, am I missing any of the social media? Let's see. Yeah, the, the email. Oh, yeah, go ahead. I email. Why don't you guys email us, and we really would love it. I do have the, on, on our Twitter, I do have the link to our Apple page, and I would love it if you guys would drop us a little review. I'll drop us a little email and let us know what's going on. Our email is openchothers at yahoo.com. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. So, until next time, enjoy the view from the open shutters. But don't fall out the window. Unless you belong to a, sac- <laughs> a satanic cult that murders people. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. Hey, do you have a podcast or maybe you're just thinking about starting a podcast? Well, I am Chris from Podtastic Audio, and here I show you tips and tricks on how to make your audio sound the best it possibly can with the gear you already have. With two years of experience on the Chris and Christine show creating the finest audio I possibly can make, I will show you the tips and tricks I have used on that show to make the audio sound fantastic. So if you have any podcast-related questions to your audio, you always can email me at podcasticaudio at gmail.com like this guy here did. His name is Joe. Joe writes in from the cast. 
Hey, Chris, when we all sit down together to record our episode, our audio is too low and it has a lot of echo in the recording. How do we make our show sound better? Well, Joe, is the microphone you're using rhyme with the name Betty? And is that microphone in the same room with you? I'd start with that stuff first. And for more podtastic audio information, you can go to anchor.fm slash podtastic audio, and you keep on making your amazing podcast.